0: yay also also hello we're the imaginaries and we're back it's 2021 yay i'm super 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 excited to bring you our dear listeners into our conversation with the amazing the incomparable the one and only chelsea polk You may know her as C.L. Polk. We have a long and storied history, which begins and ends with us us loving everything she's ever done, and also having her on an episode once before, which we then lost the audio for. So even though this is technically the second episode we've recorded with her, it's the first you're going to hear. So we have lots and lots of exciting (laughs) things to talk about in our first episode of 2021. So please enjoy.
1: Yes, and, and as we were coming into this episode, we were just having a fantastic time talking with Chelsea in the sort of pre-show, pre-show? Pre-show. Time. It's like pre-Super Bowl. Mm. So, uh, Chelsea, you had an opinion. Oh, well, <laughs> I got 20. <laughs> well, we're here yeah. for them. So, so the, I, the conversation was specifically centering around the switch from... Samuel, I didn't catch his last name. As the narrator for Witchmark, to Moira Quirk for <laughs> Stormsong and uh, the latest Midnight Barkin.
2: Yes. Um, okay, so um, Moira Quirk has done the audio for Stormsong, so she mm-hmm. is officially and canonically the voice of Grace Hensley. Yeah. I think I just... Yes. Indeed, Into it. <laughs> she was the one who read that, but she also read The Midnight Bargain, so she's the narrator mm-hmm. of Beatrice's story at all as well. Um, the first um audiobook, Witchmark, was actually narrated by Samuel Rukin, and uh, you might have remembered him from his tiny, tiny part in a terrible series of movies that I don't talk about anymore, oh. but he. <laughs> <laughs> I I can think of several <laughs> options there <laughs> <laughs> It's probably the first one you thought of Okay, uh, excellent um, But he was also on a television series Called Turn Washington Spies hmm. And this is kind of a funny thing I have right? watched because part of that show Like two episodes <laughs> He was Simcoe Okay So yeah, this is the thing, right? Is that I'm watching this episode of turn Washington spies because I'm totally trying to figure out who my, um, my audiobook narrator. Yes, yeah, yeah. and he's the heel. He's the heel, but he's John Graves Simcoe. Yes. to Canadians, this guy is like a heroic figure. Yes, <laughs> but he's the bad guy. <laughs> well, Washington Spies definitely has,
1: shall we say, a pro-America lean. I mean, it has very nice costumes and and very serious yeah. serious looking people who are appropriately but beautifully dirty like they are an outlander you know they only get little like cuts on their cheekbones to emphasize oh right
2: (laughs) glamorously (laughs) filthy that's right (laughs) this dirt is historical dirt yeah he's got all he's got that scruffy aragorn vibe yeah
1: Yeah, for sure so does it change how you perceive like your
2: characters then to have them narrated by specific people um well one of the things about when I first got the audiobook narrator is that I was actually given a choice Mm. between audiobook narrators for Witchmark Mm. and I I had a bit of a time with it because they gave me two different narrators and one of them was Samuel Rukin Mm-hmm. With an English accent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and another one was, oh my gosh, who did they get? I don't even remember. But he he's read a ton of audiobooks. Mm-hmm. He okay. he reads Brandon Sanderson's audiobooks. Oh, oh okay, cool. So um, he's read a lot of very and, long books. <laughs> and and yeah, it's gonna drive me crazy if I don't figure it out. Hang on a second. <sighs> yeah, is it um, Michael Kramer? I. Yes. Michael Kramer is his name. Yay. Yay. <laughs> but I had this, this choice where it was like, I had a reader with an American accent and I had a reader with a British accent. Mm-hmm. And I'd already kind of gotten this reception from Witchmark that it takes place in an alternate England. Mm-hmm. And I kind of screw up my face at that because yeah. it's not right. It's an alternate Vancouver Island.
0: Oh, right. <laughs> um, oh.
2: <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like, you know, and I couldn't really explain that I basically like lifted the geography mm-hmm. <laughs> and the <laughs> biome of like southwestern British Columbia. And that was basically where I was like, what if what if the lower mainland of B.C. except a really, really bad weather? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and so like I was I was trying to think of like I wanted an area that I went with the geography of like Vancouver, Vancouver Island, the Queen Charlotte Islands is kind of my mental geography because I was born there. Mm -hmm. I grew up there. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm very familiar with the area and what it's like. And Mm. the geopolitics of Kingston roughly follows the geopolitics of Vancouver and Burnaby and New Westminster. Like, when I talk about... (laughs) <laughs> when I talk about the south end of Kingston which is where all the Semindans live mm-hmm. they live in New Westminster uh, and Richmond so they live along the banks of the Blue River which is actually the Fraser River and the resulting uh, estuary uh, um, huh. I, I I totally ripped it off that's mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what it. I did and I just kind of prayed that nobody asked me to make a map yeah. because I would have been completely <laughs> busted Um. <laughs> well, Oh, you could do oh oh who was it was it um who was it who had the
1: map of guam and then had her daughter draw it
0: oh i think it was uh, Machia Machia Lussier.
1: Lussier. Yes. um makia Lucier yes that was fantastic so yeah you you don't have to worry there are other authors who are <laughs>
2: inspired <laughs> by real world islands. I'm, I'm so glad <laughs> oh man i'm so glad so, I basically use it used like generally the Vancouver area's geography, but I used New York's weather mm-hmm. dialed to eleven uh-huh. because New York is a place where you can get hurricanes, tornadoes, and blizzards, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. major snow cyclone blizzards. And I was like, that is the chaos I'm <laughs> looking for <Yes.
0: laughs> in in a, in a way,
1: it's like the fifth season only you get it every year.
2: It never mm-hmm. stops. Yeah. <laughs> I, wow. And and so I, you know, when I was just sort of like, you know, do I, do I like make a big stink and resist this alternate England thing? Because like, I was really thinking of it, like, with like a very Canadian sensibility on the geography. Yeah. Like the geography that I understand. Because face it, I'm not really that creative. Yeah. Oh, and, <laughs> bullshit. Uh, yeah, I know. I don't believe that. Oh, bullshit. Second. Well, it's it's not that I'm not creative. It's just that I expend a great deal of creative energy in some areas and mm. in other areas. I'm just like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I do get
0: that. That, that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm. <laughs> so um, I
1: was wondering if we could do a very quick backtrack. And Chelsea, if you could do just a very summary um, explanation of what the Witchmark series is about and then the Midnight Bargain as well.
2: Okay, let's see. How do I explain the Kingston cycle Mm -hmm. in a really short period of time? (laughs) You don't have to if you Um, want to take a long time, that too. That's fine. Well, I'm going to try. I'm going to try because, (laughs) you know, I. I can motor melt if people <laughs> let me go. And yes. sometimes, sometimes shorter messages have greater impacts. So really? the Kingston cycle is the fantasy novel you get when the person who wrote it read those who walk away from Mimela's and got really mad.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Nice to the heart. <laughs> and the progression of the trilogy is what happens when the author thinks about her anger at those who walk away from Amela's read it again and understood something that she didn't understand when she was first pissed off. And Mm -hmm. that was, you're supposed to get pissed off. Yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) exactly. Um, Wow. So that's, that's the overarching theme Mm -hmm. of the story. Um, each book is basically telling the story of going from a um, the status quo of a um, monarchist society with an aristocracy that controls everything, mm-hmm. like literally everything, mm-hmm. and uses that control to create greater and greater advantages and power for themselves mm-hmm. while pretending that they are doing their best for all of the people mm-hmm. <laughs> and then goes through the transformation and shake up to change this system to something that will allow its society to heal from the damage done by this old system mm. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's yeah and nice there's a lot of, I think that there's a
1: theme of heteronormativity being like policed in in both your Kingston cycle and the Midnight Bargain. So it's really fun <sighs> to see the carry-throughs and also the ways in which the Midnight Bargain is so very different.
2: Yay! <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I think probably, like, I wound up talking about heteronormativity, like, deliberately in the world building of the Kingston cycle Mm -hmm. for one reason, and then I was dealing with the heteronormativity of the Midnight Bargain for an entirely different reason. Mm -hmm. And the joke that I like to tell is that I don't write heterosexual characters unless their sexuality serves a story yeah okay yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody's gay we all know they're, this they're, yes. they, it's their turn <laughs> i you know it's it's kind of bloody minded of me but that's what ended up happening i wrote the the midnight bargain the whole thing falls apart mm-hmm. if the characters in it are not cis and straight mm-hmm. like the whole thing is basically pointing out the the main feature of what people absolutely assume mm-hmm. about cis hetero relationships is natural normal accepted the point mm-hmm. and saying you know what this actually sucks mm-hmm. <laughs> a, lot. Yes. a lot a lot a lot Yeah. Yeah,
1: And, and I'm super excited. I know we have some questions about, um, you know, the depiction of, of queerness and the queering that you do in, um, the Midnight Bargain specifically. And I was wondering, because last time we spoke in the, you know, the, destroyed or forgotten episode um the long lost episode we we <laughs> that's talked very, briefly that's very <laughs> exciting it makes it sound like we
0: swallowed it to keep anyone else from looking at it
1: <laughs> it's ours. yeah it's, it's the apocrypha <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but we talked briefly about how um you know at the time you weren't able to share too much about midnight bargain but you mentioned that you were thinking about writing an ace character. And I was wondering if that informed, um, the character of Isbeta in The Midnight Bargain, even though, like, mm-hmm. you don't use the vocabulary of, you know, modern, um, LGBTQ plus communities to
2: sort of define or describe her. Um, yeah, I was kind of, when I was, when I was writing the story, um, I was in this position where um, Espeta was who she was. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that I I just had to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I didn't want to be like subtly ace coded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As I was writing Isbeta being exactly who she is. Mm-hmm. So like she basically when she's like, talking to Beatrice about her romantic problems. She just kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, sounds fake, but okay. Same. (sighs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really related to her and all of those
1: passages where she's like, you're fantastic people, but I do not want to marry any of you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) oh okay so um i could go all over with my questions today
0: honestly i kind of i kind of like what's going on this feels very organic um i i kind of preface this by saying that i always read like queer romantic relationships into everything but i actually really liked um that they didn't have one isbeta and beatrice um because As I was reading it, I was like having a deep friendship between Mm. two women is – it feels like it shouldn't be as – it it was feeling like kind of novel in a way that as I was experiencing it as novel, I was like angry about it because I was like this shouldn't be novel. This should be like normal that like we're seeing, you know, multiple female characters who are – especially in a book – like um, The Midnight Bargain, which I want to talk about, um, you know, the recognizable gendering of the world. But mm-hmm. um, I know Kent has a question to pick up with on here, but I just wanted to throw out that I love their relationship. I love their friendship. Um, it's super complicated and super complex. Um, and question Kent, go.
1: Tony, mm-hmm. which question was I going to ask?
0: Um, you were going to ask, let's see um can we use the relationship between sorry the brother the the brother i totally blanked on his name but i have
1: iante iante
0: do you say beyonce
1: no yes it's beyonce (laughs)
2: iante i keep wanting to say mr levon Um, (laughs) mr levon uh,
0: yes yes
2: he's so reckless when he wears his Givenchy dress (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Yes! <laughs>
0: oh, my God. Yes. Amazing. So their, their <laughs> relationship <love> <laughs> um, is very, like, there's such a clear, like, supportive sibling dynamic there, um, while at the same time, mm-hmm. like, you can see, you know, the history of siblings um, fighting, bonding, et cetera, as they grew up. Um, mm-hmm. So the question that Kent asked is, can we use their relationship to sort of, like, peek into your thoughts as a writer about um, power dynamics between siblings, healthy versus unhealthy allies, um you know, when you don't even necessarily have a word to describe what mm-hmm. is better is in universe. Um so, I'm I'm paraphrasing <laughs> what Ken asked there to try and Right. Bring and it just back kind around. of
1: respecting other people's boundaries and identities, I suppose.
2: Um hmm. I mean it's it's a good question and it's it's actually really quite complicated. When I was thinking about Anthony and Isbeta growing up together, I was thinking like I'm I am functionally an only child. I have a sister, but she wasn't born until I was fourteen.
0: Mm.
2: Oh, mm-hmm. Cool. Functionally um, only child, yeah. <laughs> but like i knew people who grew up with siblings much closer to their own age and i was always really fascinated by the variance in their relationship mm-hmm. um like i knew siblings who like seriously was on fi- it was on sight they hated each other mm-hmm. they would do violence to each other they would destroy each other's things mm. they would steal each other's stuff they would rat each other out at the Every at time. the least opportunity mm-hmm. right like they were just nightmares to each other Same. Yeah. and then like I you know I saw other sibling relationships that were like maybe a little bit competitive and then I saw sibling relationships that were um maybe I don't know. Sometimes I think that the person who can hurt you most is your brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. A lot of the time, but there's a one sibling pair, one sibling pair that always stood out to me when I was growing up and it was a boy and a girl and their parents specifically would not allow them to get into like competition or conflict with each other. Oh, interesting. They, We're taught, like, healthy communication styles, how to cooperate with each other, Hmm. how to be a team, how to be fair to each other, how to, like, perceive each other as people with needs of equal importance and none of this hierarchy bullshit. And these two are ride or die. Hmm. Like, (laughs) it is ridiculous. Do not cross them. They will get you. (laughs) And... I wanted that for Iante and Izbeta. So I was thinking about their parents, specifically their mother, Mm -hmm. basically always putting them together and saying, you will always have each other to rely on. You will always have each other's backs. You will always support each other Mm -hmm. because and it's not about image and it's not about reputation and it's not about tradition. It is because you will always be together. Mm. Yeah. And you are a team mm-hmm. always. Yeah. And that she brought them up to be that way. Mm-hmm. So Isbeta always knows that she has her brother's support. And, you know, they're always knows that he has his support. This is part of why is while being really good friends with Beatrice was ready to throw her under the marriage <laughs> bus mm-hmm. because it would make her brother happy. The, the barouche, the marriage barouche. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The marriage barouche. Just <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: And yet he is also the person who out of his good intentions can be, create the most harm by trying to make decisions without i suppose consulting her so there is that mm-hmm. there is that moment where that um that working together as a team doesn't happen in the novel and it creates some very uncomfortable side effects for both beatrice and isbeta which i found really mm-hmm. interesting and um, I love that he, he grows in his understanding of how to be a support, not just to Isbeta, but to women of all shapes and and colors. And, um, I just love it. It's, it's, um, it's so rare to see such a definitive story arc, I think. Yeah. Especially for a male character. And I'm like punching myself in the face for (laughs) that being a
2: thing I had to come out of my mouth, but it did. (laughs) <laughs> oh goodness! I mean the 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 problematic aspects of Iante because, like, I mean, let's face it, Iante is is a stand-up guy. Mm-hmm. He's and awesome. Very hot, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like he's beautiful. He's rich. He's considerate. He listens, mm-hmm. and what's that and like? just like I mean, he is totally good. Yeah. Except. That he has grown up in the patriarchy, yes, and nobody ever told him it was bullshit. Yep, he's been programmed, and and, and it's just it's just it's like this blind spot because mm-hmm. this is another thing that I noticed about the the siblings I know in real life who are ride or die mm-hmm. for each other. Mm-hmm. They are ride or die for each other, but if they get into a car together. He always drives. Huh. If they are approached by someone who speaks to them both, he answers first. Oh,. Mm-hmm. And it's just these tiny little things like they they love each other, they respect each other, they regard each other as complete equals. They are best friends, they are a team. But patriarchy still colors their relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, and you know, the patriarchy and the dismantling of has been a tiny portion of the very eventful year that we've been having um, since last February, I guess. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, is, there, is there anything that you feel you have to say about this book, which was written before any of this nightmare nonsense
2: happened? Um, uh... <laughs> Go ahead. I... I'm glad I wrote this book. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I wrote this book. And my first urge for the book and Mm. the one that I hung on to was that I wanted to write something that had kind of a vision board theme Mm -hmm. of indulgence. Mm. Indulgence. I wanted to write an indulgent story. I wanted to revel in beautiful clothes and sartorial porn. Yes and and luxury and beauty and just i you know i just wanted to go completely over the top yeah. with that and then when i was thinking about magic i was like and i want basically for it to be like this complex really ceremonial like bells and smells mm-hmm. kind of kind of like ritualized institutionalized formal Mm -hmm. kind of magic of course what beatrice does is kind of this this syncretism of witchcraft Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that's like the the source material that she has and basically working on what she understands and knows and is experimenting with so she doesn't use all of the really expensive ritual furniture that Iante is accustomed to because she doesn't have access to any of that stuff. And she's moving I mean, way too a, fast for a lot of it too. And and she is moving way too fast for a lot of it. And she is proving that a lot of that a lot of that ornamentation and and formality and like requirements and tradition is just basically magic drag.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm yep (laughs) that's such a good way to describe it that sounds
2: and i am so in favor of that magic drag forever (laughs) uh yeah so
1: so you have found synergy between the book and the real world but you managed to kind of hold true to a vision that wasn't um i suppose defined by the feelings of this particular
2: moment like maybe it's more timeless that way I think I think basically anything that I write is going to be a reflection of the moment that I wrote it in, Mm -hmm. as well as kind of a reflection of like what I'm thinking about, what I'm interested in, what I'm curious by, what I'm furious about Mm -hmm. in that moment. And if it turns out that we're still fighting this shit a year and a half later Mm -hmm. when the book comes out, that's not my fault. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, right, right. It reminds me. Um, of like when, when. Trump started like when his oh, God. within his first year but then like everyone was rediscovering Octavia Butler and the parable duology and being mm. like Octavia mm-hmm. Butler predicted this and it's like no she just she wrote what she was angry about and what she was thinking about and that just happens to be the same shit that we're still dealing with like a couple of decades yeah. later like it's not it was prescient in the way that nothing got better and science has a tool yeah <laughs> exactly
2: yeah. Octavia tried to tell you and you didn't listen yep if you just listened to octavia butler we wouldn't be here today yes exactly yes. storming the capital
0: <laughs> exactly oh my god
2: yep. and and it's just yeah um and so it's like basically i think probably your work can look awfully prophetic mm-hmm. if you are really thinking about the moment that you are currently in yes. as you are writing yes right and totally. and was um, Mid- was Midnight Bargain an October
1: book? I'm kind of forgetting which
2: month it came out. Yeah, it came out in October. Actually, the the schedule from like actually writing the first draft to mm-hmm. the publication was about as fast as it gets in traditional oh. publishing. Hmm. Eighteen months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I started writing the first draft. I I was still writing it in June. Okay. Oh wow. Of twenty nineteen. That's a really fast
1: turnaround. Once yeah. they received
2: the the finished manuscript. It wow. went on sub. Okay. It went on sub in October. In no, not August mm-hmm. twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. And it was just basically this thing where my agent was like, I. Really want certain people to see this book right away. I don't want to wait until September. I'm going to give it to them now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And good choice. Um,
0: <laughs> yes.
2: And yeah, I think it. Uh, I think from the deal memo to being on the shelves, it was about a year, and <laughs> it was really fast. That yeah. is <laughs> so fast. That's amazing. <sighs> I'm
1: impressed. I'm super impressed. Also, because you had two books out in one year, and um, you know, Storm Song. Is is a phenomenal book as well. Um, and hopefully we get to spend some time talking about it later because it's also, you know, a book that stands on its own two legs very well indeed.
2: Mm-hmm. Um
1: and how long what was the kind of schedule or time frame for Storm Song?
2: Uh Storm Song was like basically um it took longer. Mm-hmm. It took longer to write, it took longer to edit. Um the book actually got pushed back. Mm. Um, well, basically what happened was, is I wrote something and it was kind of this throwaway thing that I had done mm-hmm. okay. that, you know, I just kind of threw in for flavor because it was neat yeah. uh-huh. and didn't really think too much about it. Well, Carl, Carl Engel Blair, mm-hmm. saw it and was like, no, this, this, you basically like, this is what you need to be talking about yeah. in this story. this." Like, you hit it, but you didn't see it through because it didn't fit mm-hmm. with the other things that you were writing. But this, this is it. This is what the story is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, fine. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's the consequences of the first book
1: that then have yes. to be grappled with and society essentially remade. And there's this one person who is like, the driving force behind that change and taking on all of the, um, I guess, the good and the negative energy involved in that process. Uh-huh. And it's just, yes, ugh, I love it when there's a falling apart, like society's, you know, going under is wonderful. I love it. But I also really love when there's the new beginning and mm-hmm. that the consequences of one book are followed through on and it doesn't just end with like the the dissolution of a society. I'm not talking about the Hunger Games here or anything, but you know
2: <laughs> Yeah, um I think one of the things that I was really clear on with Storm Song from the beginning was that it was absolutely about the consequences of the end of the first book. Mm-hmm. And for any listeners who haven't read the first book I'm going to try very hard not to talk about that so that it's not spoiled for you because yeah that would be kind of mean buy my book And you <laughs> should have read it by um, now already
1: like yeah. if you haven't read this book yeah. you have
2: not been paying attention to us at all
0: because we recommended um, it a while ago
2: like years ago <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit more um bold with kind of like putting a shine on myself and saying, Hey, I'm awesome, buy my book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um practicing. <laughs> but I like basically like I passed the narrative baton to Grace. Mm-hmm. And Grace in the first book was kind of a sub antagonist. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Kind of like, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get all Robert McKee's drama or whatever. <laughs> she like she's a source of complication. How about that? She, yeah, she was a source of complication. And, and, and it is more complex than just secondary antagonist. Yeah, right. Um, because, because like, you know, she's... Miles' sister and they grew up together and they grew up protecting each other Mm -hmm. um and grace grace like they they had that dynamic where miles was the son who couldn't do anything right Mm -hmm. and grace was the daughter who couldn't do anything wrong Mm. and Grace spent a lot of time trying to use her status within the family to protect Miles Mm -hmm. and kind of get him a little of what he wanted. Um, And that, you know, she tried to do this, but at the same time, she absolutely accepted and expected Mm. that Miles was going to be her secondary and that, she was the leader of the relationship and that what miles wanted was kind of important, but not really a priority. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not, it's not because she's selfish. It's not because she's evil. It's just that that was exactly how she was taught. The world worked that she had a gift. It was her responsibility to use that gift and transmute it into power for her and her family in order to continue the tradition of stewarding Eland. Yes. Mm-hmm. This was the line that she had been fed. It's amazing what brainwashing and, can do for you these days. Yes. Yeah. And and I mean, the thing is, is that, like, I worried at the time that it was like a little bit too over the top brainwashing uh-uh. nope. to uh-uh. believe. Nope. Nope. And then 2020 happened. Yeah, and, right, and, right. and now I don't believe that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe that anymore. So there's there's kind of a minor arc in Witchmark where grace basically has to face up to the cognitive dissonance of trying to hold two things that are absolutely not compatible with each other as the truth. And at the end... The cognitive dissonance breaks, and she sees that most of her life she has been wrong about many, many things. Mm -hmm. And in her book, she starts the book trying to fix them Mm -hmm. without anybody ever finding out that anything had gone wrong. Mm -hmm. Of course, she did. That's exactly what she was brought up to do. Don't scare the horses, make sure everything's running smoothly. That is your responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the book, she is like, you know what? That's bullshit too and it doesn't work. Yep. <laughs> and, and and that's her that's her arc through Stormsong is yeah. just kind of realizing that what she believed to be right and moral the, what she believed were her the way to like manifest her good intentions was wrong right. and that she had to change everything that she did.
1: And the way that families perpetuate societal wrongs seems to be another like ongoing thread within your writing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like uh, even even families that are otherwise supportive and um, uh, you know generous. Um, and it really helps uh-huh. me to understand the um, both the love and the sort of cruelty of families within a system and I appreciate it. I appreciate that it's complicated that you don't try to make it simple.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and another thing that I'm trying to talk about through the entire trilogy in one way or another mm-hmm. is um why are names just flying <laughs> out of my mind? <laughs> Um, it's probably because okay. all of those swear words were in their place. Yeah, all of the swear words take up the room of like everybody's name instead of anybody's yes. name. I have the seven words you can't say on TV. Yes. but <laughs> but like, which mark is about this quote from Audrey Lord? Mm-hmm. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm -hmm. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, Mm -hmm. but they will never enable us to bring justice. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ah, Yes.
2: And, and so like, I, it's no fun to just like start, right there like it it isn't like it doesn't make for a fun story you have to let people fuck up Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so (laughs) and so like this is this is the thing that I'm talking about but instead of somebody just kind of walking in and saying you know let's do this and everybody goes I agree and then they do it and and everything's fine that's you know
0: that's it doesn't fun.
2: happen at it's the end. It's a pretty of good polemic, but it's not much of a sure. story. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and so like, I I have people kind of trying to do that whole, like, reform from within. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Let's change. Let's change this gradually like william incrementalism Wilberforce is good mm-hmm. and and all this other stuff right like i give them the chance to try that and then discovering that you know what like it's idealistic and it's nice but it's not effective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm.
0: yeah and that it reminds me actually since we were since we were on the Levons in uh <laughs> Midnight Bargain, like thinking about how much uh Isbeta and Iante's parents are good at like raising their children to respect each other, but then absolutely fail when it comes to dismantling the systems that are oppressing people like you know supporting their kids at least initially when they're like hey we wanted to go in a totally different direction it's it's so interesting that you know the themes are a current net i wrote in the notes that like one of the big things that i've seen in all three of your books are or is this like really take no nonsense and probably fuck it up but like fundamentally you know, accept no bullshit regarding mm. inequity <laughs> and mm-hmm. like that's where they're always going and I love that Um because like the first two books of the Kingston cycle that we've gotten look at it and feel very different from the Midnight Bargain and yet they're all kind of like they have the same kind of like thematic tissue connecting them. Mm-hmm. That sounds really gross when I put it like that. Like they're all kind of Thomatic like,
2: thematic tissue?
0: Yes, right. <coughs> they're, they're like,
2: Ligaments. It's, it's just a
0: lump of flesh. <laughs> That's what they all are. <laughs> but, but nicer than that.
1: <laughs> That's one way to end a sentence.
0: It definitely Aww. is. Um, <laughs> I, I am also going to note, just for the record, that we are um, at about 46 minutes now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, w- oh God. I, will, I, <laughs> I know, I could talk going to, to you suggest, forever, frankly. I know, me too. Seriously. I like. I just looked at it and I was like, oh, is that what time it is? Um, I am going to suggest <laughs> maybe that we do one more question from the notes and then kind of bookmark it. Okay. And then do another episode in the future because I still want to talk about a lot of what we have yeah. there. And seriously, yeah. and we and could talk to you forever.
1: <laughs> and I have a question that came up even since I added to the show notes yesterday, which is like the – the responses to Midnight Bargain being that it's too ya when you're looking at the, like, you know, the three-star Goodreads reviews or whatever it is. You know, when you click yeah. in there, like, the thing that people seem to object to is that it's YA. And I never quite got that sense, even though the characters are young. I suppose they could be um the center of a YA novel but I was just kind of wondering how you felt about that like did you see this book as YA I certainly did um
2: I I did not like I did not Beatrice yeah she's 18 years old Mm -hmm. and I suppose technically Mm -hmm. that puts her in the age range for YA protagonists Mm -hmm. that said I am dealing with the set dressing of an historical area mm-hmm. era mm-hmm. that absolutely did not consider 18 year old women to be children. Yeah. F- I right. agree. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> For sure. They did not. I mean, it was not the most healthy attitude. Like, yeah. of course, 18 year old women are children. They don't know how to be adults yet. Yeah. They total have no clues at being adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah. it was like, for the for the the setting that I was using, mm-hmm. Beatrice had to be the age that she was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because Harriet has to be the age that oh, she Harriet.
1: is. Oh, Harriet. Harriet. I've got to talk about Harriet next time. I have feelings <laughs> about Harriet, because as yeah. a youngest I, child... You know, I have feelings that have to be Yay shared opinions. <laughs> but Tony, did you have a concluding question that you wanted to get to? I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you.
0: Uh no, you totally did not. Um I hmm. I I said it all as though I was like, Well, this is where I'm gonna end, but I actually was kind of making it up as I went. I <laughs> I did not We
1: don't know what we're doing. We haven't no take a long break from recording episodes at we the sure end of didn't. Hell Gear. Oh, no. Um
0: oh okay I, I actually do have a good thing um that we could end with because okay. it's it's chilling and I think it's it, it's a good kind of avatar of a lot of the you know the past 50 minutes um and that is the caller in The Midnight Bargain.
1: Yes. Oh
2: yes
0: um because it was so horrific. And the section, I, I think I
1: literally got chills, yeah. like the first couple times it was mentioned, and when it was locked around her neck, yes, um, preemptively, I was like, No, why are you <laughs> doing this?
0: Yes, yes, yeah. The sections where We're... she's wearing it are just so, Ugh. it makes me I, want they, nauseous, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: I, it's symbolism, mm-hmm. yeah. also, I am evil. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, but everyone has to be a
1: little evil to, you know, tell a fantastic story. I think. Yeah. Um, was Was it Was it kind of like a, a metaphor made manifest uh, in a sense, or did you kind of start
2: with the um, the plot and then it necessitated a device? Uh, um. Okay, this is how it went. My mm-hmm. very first impulse was, and the piece of binding jewelry that they wear in order to protect them is a collar that they weigh around their necks. And then I went, whoa Nelly, think about this for a second. Think about the implications you are making with this. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I was like, okay, well, let's move the piece of binding jewelry. Mm-hmm. Where do we put it? Yeah. Bracelets are too easy. It's too easy to get a bracelet off. Like you can break your bracelet. It's you know, too wrist. easy to get mm-hmm. a bracelet off. Mm-hmm. Anklets are like, yeah, they're harder to take off, but then, then there are, are like, they're kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and it was just sort of like, and the other thing too is that, you know, it's you don't go wandering around mm. looking at women's ankles right. to see if they're married. <laughs> what are you, a perv? <laughs> 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 I have an ankle. Hat that have. <laughs> and so. I I mean, I appreciate a good ankle. Yeah. But, <laughs> it's um, very shapely. So I I put this symbol around her neck for the visibility of it. Yeah. So you can see it right off the bat. This woman is married and she is a sorceress. Mm-hmm. You can yeah. tell immediately it signals a bunch of things all at once. Yeah. And for the other thing, I realize that the symbolism makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm going to sit with that. Yeah. Hmm. Mhm. I'm I'm going to let it happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Made me uncomfortable too. So good
1: work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But in a good way. Uncomfortable in a good way. I mean, it's it's yeah. one thing to like I know like for example, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia are often accused of being like too obviously allegorical and on the nose, but to a certain extent like skipping <laughs> certain Sorry. things and just, just going full that Lion
0: is Jesus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for real. He yeah. <laughs> yes. is.
0: Sorry, please, please continue. this
1: Boy was my favorite for a reason. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, so so in, in Midnight Bargain, like you just go full at the metaphor and you're unapologetic about it. And I do not respond to the Midnight Bargain the way that I do to the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, because <laughs> I think they're performing very different functions, especially coming from... Um, you know the marginalized voices coming from the restricted voices, whereas the Chronicles of Narnia was being written by and coming from you know the dominant culture at mm. the time, and mm-hmm. and so I wonder how much of this book feels like protest against like existing things, and how much the metaphor kind of plays into that.
2: Um, I think I think that. I mean, part of it is that, you know, when I'm dealing with the the power of the metaphor and the symbolism of somebody's whose freedom is restricted by pulling a collar around their neck, mm-hmm. I am very much like, yes, mm-hmm. like there is an elephant in the room and I want you to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And you want to kill and... the elephant? <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, and it was just like, it's the same brutal practicality that makes the caller a symbol of slavery that yeah. is at play in the Midnight mm-hmm. Bargain. It is the same reasoning. It is impossible to get off mm-hmm. if it is locked. You can't. You can't wiggle your way out of it. You can't dislocate your thumb and right. wiggle out of it. Right. And it's quote
1: unquote, for your own good, which is like a, an argument that has been used in historical slavery situations that I always find super annoying. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and so, yeah, it's like I, it was the first thing I thought of. I thought again. And then after kind of considering it, I decided that that was what I was going to roll with. Because mm. the thing is, is that I couldn't do something that was absolutely permanent it had to be removable by somebody Mm -hmm. so I couldn't go with like say a tattoo Mm -hmm. or a brand or anything like that (laughs) or yeah it's just like I I you know I had to I had to come up with something that was removable because the idea is that you know women are permitted to do whatever scraps of magic they can do Mm -hmm. after their childbearing years are over. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
2: I'm so mad about that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep.
2: Like when I, when I realized that was the problem, I, my ears got really hot.
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's a really interesting physiological reaction. (laughs) When I get angry, I get very white.
2: Like all the blood mm. drains from my face, oh yeah, well, when I yeah, when i when I'm angry, when I'm furious, when I am suddenly overtaken by blazing hot anger, it's literally hot, it runs over my scalp like red lightning, mm. and the very first thing I think is, oh girl, be careful, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love that though, like
1: you you are literally like throwing off sparks when you're angry. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, so how do we end this episode? I don't know. I don't know! By announcing a, a new one? A second yeah. one?
0: Yeah, let's do that. That's a great idea. Okay. Cool. Well, well, was that officially the end?
1: We can make that officially the end cool. if you guys say goodbye yeah. too. Okay, let's I mean, make it officially yeah, the end. Yeah. I
0: love it. That's, I think that's a very fun way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> um, goodbye. I am Wonderful. ending...